0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi,
1: I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now, your next presentation with Canva Presentations.
0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com On this program, Debbie Millman talks with architect Jim Bieber about designing the Harley-Davidson Museum and the Museum of Sex and about why it's always eye-popping to visit buildings and not just look at architectural models and pictures.
2: There's always something that's completely unexpected and it's like, you know, the difference between pornography and sex. I mean, oh. You know, it's like, you know, it's it's one thing to read about it, and it's entirely different to participate. Here's Debbie Millman.
1: If architecture is like frozen music, what does the headquarters for Muzak look like? Jim Bieber can answer that question. He's the architect who designed the building in Fort Mill, South Carolina. But lest you think Bieber is the architectural equivalent of Muzak, Again, Bieber also designed—you guessed it—the Harley Davidson Museum in Milwaukee. He's here with us today to talk about that project and many other design challenges from his three decades of architectural innovation. Welcome to Design Matters, Jim. Thanks, Debbie. So I realized in my research on you over the last couple of weeks that you seem to have an unusual fascination with the Waffle House. so why
2: you know it's a it's a rare taste the waffle house there are those who think it's the let us say the lowest common denominator of of american food but the waffle house has the largest sign to store ratio sign area to store ratio of any business in america The, the signs are actually almost always bigger than the stores They're open 24 hours. I
1: didn't even know there was a sign-to-store ratio. Uh,
2: I've just made this up. Oh, okay. (laughs) I I just realized that they're very tiny places with very, very large signs made of those big yellow letters set into a grid in all different sorts of configurations. And they're the most democratic um, institution in America, I think.
1: What makes it democratic?
2: It's everything for everybody. It's every kind of egg and waffle you could possibly imagine. There is zero pretension – I think that everyone is comfortable there. I think of it as kind of multicultural, multiracial, multimodal food it's um It succeeds by doing everything and like being nothing at the same time i'm I'm completely fascinated by it.
1: I do agree with you about the sort of visual vernacular of the signage. It's never persuaded me to actually enter into a waffle house, so I, I actually have never been to a waffle house, oh, really? although I have admired the signage.
2: You know, it's also as efficient as it is as a science system because all they have is a W and A, two Fs, an L and an E. And when you think about it, it's incredibly efficient. They're all exactly the same size. They're all lighted exactly the same way. And the restaurant itself is also a model of efficiency. Every square millimeter is used. And so they are incredibly tiny, but they seem to produce just mountains of food.
1: Now, you have worked on quite a number of restaurant designs you've worked on the mesa grill you've worked on gotham which is one of my favorite restaurants in new york city but you never were tempted to call the waffle house people and say hey I think it's time for a rebrand
2: i once said and i still think it's true that you know if you design a museum you can have a sort of an impact on society and especially if it's an important museum and a lot of people will see it and that will affect culture if you design a Waffle House, I actually said McDonald's at the time, but if you design any mass market, make any change to any of these, the or, or a gas station, the impact is phenomenal. When you think about the multiplier effect of all those, all those places, and I am really attracted to the mass market in that way. I mean, I think that making a small improvement in 25,000 McDonald's is a gigantic global change. And making a single museum is fun, but it can't possibly have the kind of global impact that uh, the new design for waffle house can
1: well wow. Here's hoping you get a chance to work exactly. on that at some well, this, point. This may do it. Uh, <laughs> you'll send them the uh, the tape, right? I want to talk about restaurants in a little bit, but I also want to talk a little bit more about your history and how you got to this particular place in time. I understand that when you were a little boy, you had a lock set that you liked to take apart and put back together. And this was essentially your very own makeshift jigsaw. What was it about a lock set that was so fascinating to you? Know, you know, I, I have
2: no idea. Was re- it like
1: your, your baby? <clears throat> Bunny or, you know, you wouldn't let it go. <laughs> right. You
2: just like my, bring it, it to bed with you. What is it called? My, um, binky, binky, binky. Binky, right. Yeah. Now, the real question is what was a lock set doing lying around my house? <laughs> I mean, why was there a lock set just kind of on the counter in my kitchen? And I, I don't know why. And it, you, it required a screwdriver to take it apart. So what was I doing with, you know, at four years of age, whatever, with a screwdriver and a lock set? But it was my early Frobo block, Right, It was my early jigsaw puzzle and it's entirely mechanical. It's an absolutely beautiful thing, a lock set. I mean if you've seen Hugo, you know how absolutely gorgeous locks and gears and mechanical things can be. And so in a very simple way, this little mechanical device that I could take apart, put back together – Close up, take it apart, put. And it makes
1: sort of a satisfying click.
2: Yes, it does, and I think it was an old-fashioned one that had a kind of skeleton keyish thing, which could go kind of Ooh. clunk. Very heavy, cast metal, real, you know, kind of utter analog artifact.
1: I read that you really appreciate the analog mechanical logic of construction that a lock can teach you.
2: <laughs> you know, <laughs> That's it, poetry. Well, it's it, and thank you. It's um, construction is still. Even when it's driven by CNC machines and a lot of very very complicated kind of computer design, it's ultimately an extremely analog activity you know it's as much science as art it's craft and you know houses and buildings for the most part are not made the way or actually maybe they are made the way uh, iPhones are made because now as we know they're all assembled by hand in, in uh, one particular company in, in China right. and so even a digital thing is kind of is ultimately potentially an analog, an analog device. But So the process of putting something together actually has a lot to do with how architecture works, how so, building works, I should say.
1: Do you think the serendipity of your parents leaving the lock set out on the kitchen nook somehow created the architect that's sitting here today?
2: What you mean? That was their little seed. That was the catalyst. I, I they, were don't know they trying so
1: much? The seed. I don't know. I mean, you grew up in what you've described as a Rob and Laura Petrie town in New Rochelle, literally, yeah. precisely at the time that the Dick Van Dyke Show was on the air, yep. in what you referred to as a thoroughly Danish modern suburban home. That you hated,
2: <laughs> you know. It, it, it's true. Of course, now I think it's the most beautiful thing in the world, but or was. But you know, I grew up in a home that, in those days, was fairly avant-garde, fairly bohemian in a way. My mother worked for people like Herb LeBowen and, and Aaron Byrne. She sort of really. Worked, so she know, was a designer. She was a. She was mostly what they called in those days traffic.
1: Okay, yeah. I was a traffic girl back in the early 80s.
2: So she worked for those people and I knew Aaron Burns and I remember the early um, line of film machines being incredibly fascinated with that. My father had an office supply store and, you know, office supplies aren't that far from hardware stores. I mean, they are fantastic. And so he had an office supply store when... Bottled ink was still sold, carbon paper. Do you remember mimeograph machines? Oh, I do. That kind of purple print. Yeah, they
1: used to do that in college And, and duplicating
2: machines. I'm okay. sorry, those are the ones with purple print. And, yeah. And the first Xerox machine, the first Xerox 9400, this gigantic car of a machine that arrived in his, uh, his store one day. And so – and my mother had a little printing press in the basement and drawers of type mm. and So I was sort of exposed to all this and, of course, hated it because I was exposed to it. And so they had a taste in furniture. They designed a couple of pieces of furniture. My father went to – he actually won a trip to Denmark and he brought back Danish modern furniture. And I grew up around all this kind of mustard and orange and olive Olive. green. (laughs) That's what
1: I read. I, I,
2: I just couldn't bear it until I got far enough away that I realized it was spectacular. And now, of course, you know, I'm just waiting for that womb chair.
1: I I actually understand that you knew what a womb chair was before you knew what a womb was. <laughs> oh, absolutely,
2: we had a womb chair when when oh, when red? it was first red? made. Red? It was um it was not red, although it's now orange. It was black and white um, tweed and had an ottoman, and so I knew what that that womb chair was before they would ever tell me about a womb.
1: So you referred to this as an, an actually very normal or somewhat predictable upbringing, but it sounds to me that you thank your family for it now. But nothing you make is normal. So, how do you see those ideas woven
0: together?
2: You know, someone once said, "If you look at a building and the windows are either too big or too small, an architect has done it." So, there is this. What? Oh, really, that was yeah. Colin Rowe said that actually, and what he meant, and I think it's absolutely right that architects avoid normalcy because it represents you know, the kind of generic things that they are in fact trying to change. And so it's true that nothing I make is normal, but I would say that probably nothing most architects make is normal. And so having been raised in a slightly bizarro world, you could say, in a a kind of pre-designed world may have predisposed me to make abnormal things and think that they're normal. (laughs) And, And as you know, because you live among design pieces and Everybody we know lives in a kind of design environment. We're willing as designers to put up with so much what might otherwise be considered dysfunction or abnormality just because we adore these visual things. I mean the womb chair is not the most comfortable chair in the world. It's really – it's not. You know? And so it's a kind of addiction to beautiful things and it's, it can be dangerous but it is not normal.
1: Now, it's interesting that you say it can be an addiction to beautiful things, but there is no real empirical opinion about those things being beautiful. I remember before I saw the womb chair in a museum and really interested why it belonged there, I kind of thought it was a little creepy. I think that these things become beautiful when you're educated to understand why they're beautiful, but I don't know that they're necessarily aesthetically beautiful, just in the same way that, you know, nature might be beautiful.
2: I remember staring at and kind of adoring this house outside of Paris by Le Corbusier, a sort of 1929 house. And it became so ingrained in us as, as students as a thing of astonishing intelligence and beauty. I mean, just absolutely a paragon and I remember looking at a picture of it one day and someone was looking over my shoulder and, and they simply couldn't get it. They had no sense. They had no idea what made this thing beautiful. And so so it's obvious now that just like any piece of art, understanding is kind of the key to, to seeing it as beautiful. Uh, I don't know if you've seen but I just saw the um, Damien Hirst dot paintings that are now in every single Gagosian Gallery worldwide. And to some they are an astonishing joke. And to me they are so beautiful and so precisely made and so surprising because I know and you know that having the idea, that level of precision, putting those colors together, being a colorist, playing with scale, all of that is a kind of genius.
1: Oh I think I think those paintings are beautiful. I think they're amazing. I'm also a big fan of his work, but I am privy to people that don't. And question why and sort of make fun of me for, for liking some of that. Like you paid how much for what? If I, you know, bought a print of some like Agnes Martin, you know, my brothers are like, that's just lines going across a page. Right, right. Nothing against my brothers but, you know, they, I just met don't, a guy, they
2: don't love it. I met a guy last night, a painter who, he was truly horrified that I thought anything of these things and, you know, add Reinhardt, well that would be just, you know, the I ultimate know, insult. Yes.
1: <laughs> he's a... He's Robert a, Ryman and Anne Exactly.
2: Reinhardt. He's a... I mean, but you walk into those rooms and you know that when you walk into those rooms... There are other people in those rooms who are going, what in the world is this? And you think, look at that white. I mean, how? look at all those different varieties of white. I mean, look at how he – I mean, so it is a little bit of inside baseball. It is a little bit of kind of an inside game. But we don't expect the illiterate to appreciate literature. As a society, we are visually illiterate. And so the idea that everyone should innately understand – relatively intellectually developed modern art, I think is just asking asking too much.
1: It's asking a lot.
2: It is. And so, you know, if, if as kids we were all properly educated to be visually literate, I was. I mean, I had an art class the whole time I was in elementary school. Then I think you could expect more, but it's just not a part of what society thinks is critical.
1: It's really extraordinary what having that little bit of exposure can do to change your life. I just saw A little film that Google had put together about how having the ability to find information in impoverished places has helped the people that live in those impoverished places to lift themselves up out of them ever so slightly. Just that information, just that ability to learn changes one's life. So you went to Cornell for architecture. Did you know in high school that's what you were going to do? No, actually,
2: I went to Cornell for biology. Oh, and, but you graduated uh, with a degree. But I graduated uh, okay. with a degree in architecture. and I yeah, and wasn't I,
1: able to get the transcripts, I'm sorry. Right, exactly. Cornell. Well,
2: I'll make them available at a <laughs> later date. Um, I went to Cornell to study biology because I was convinced when I left high school that all I really wanted to do was teach biology. That, was, that to me was the kind of highest calling. But in those days, of course, teaching was an incredibly high calling. But it didn't take me long to realize that I was no scientist. And, and organic chemistry actually was the thing that taught me that. And it also occurred to me in 1971 or whatever, whenever I was studying this, there were no moral choices in biology. Biology was at a kind of very funny stage before the genome had been fully mapped, but after it had been discovered. It was a kind of discipline without any personal expression or, or moral choice, I thought. What do you and mean
1: by moral choice?
2: There was no way that your behavior in the field could affect the facts of science, and the facts seemed settled. And so you could study very, very tiny sort of slivers of information, and you could uncover some tiny, obscure little detail, but that just seemed to have no impact. And now I think the opposite. Now I think biology, bioengineering, cancer research, these things are the most powerful, the most alive and vibrant and innovative fields. But I was just in it at the wrong time and, and with the wrong skills, to be honest.
1: So when you graduated, you received quite a few awards. And I guess similar to your father, you ended up going – you won an award to go to Europe, essentially.
2: Similar to my father, right. <laughs> um, yeah, I think he got it for selling lots of desks.
1: And, and, I, and I got it for the same reason. Yeah, for making a lot of desks. For, yes,
2: exactly, for for moving through a lot of desks. I got a couple of awards and one of them was a traveling fellowship. And I'd never been to Europe. I mean, so I was – twenty two or three and I'd never been to Europe. And so I took the money from this fellowship and I after working for a, a bit to gather some more funds, I spent almost a year in a little duchot traveling all over Europe, seeing every building, every, I mean, doing the kind of research live that I'd been doing on paper for all that time. You know, most of most of what we know about architecture we know because of images. What do you mean by that? Well, most people don't see the building. Most people see many fewer buildings than they will ever see in pictures. And so we know them not only by images, but we know them by some very specific images. You know, Julia Schulman's images of West Coast case study houses, some of which have been changed or don't exist, are the defining images of that time. And people who haven't seen those houses still know them and they know those iconic images. And so to see something live after you only know it through images is, I think, always startling. There's always something that's completely unexpected. And I love that. It's like, you know, the difference between pornography and sex. I oh. mean, you know, it's like, you know, <laughs> it's it's one thing to read about it and it's entirely different to participate. And so traveling around and seeing these things was the second education. So I'd, I'd been through a five-year architecture program. I'd learned a lot about history and a lot about things. And... You know, I gave le- I actually gave lectures on places I'd never been, so wow. I finally got to see them. Education number two, right? You know, graduate school, so to speak.
1: You've said that all architecture is biography. What do you mean by that?
2: Well, it is impossible to make something as as designed as a building and as you know handmade in the sense of. Or a brain-made instead of handmade. Let's put it. It's impossible to design I something. I
1: love that brain-made, brain-made instead so of handmade. So much more conceptual.
0: Yeah,
2: mm-hmm. it, it's impossible to make something that's designed without it being filled with all sorts of personal or historical or or other references. And so, you know, all of these objects always contain. I think. Are, I think they're always laden with. They're always burdened with a kind of set of meanings that are. You know, sometimes really obvious and sometimes um, not so and sometimes about the commissioner of the art, so to speak, and, and sometimes about the artist. And so they are all biographies. And, and I think sorting out whose biography is actually the, the interesting question and sorting out from the point of view of the patron. Yeah, owner, whose biography is it? Right. Is and, it the
1: architect's biography? Is it the owner's biography? Is it the decorator's biography? Right.
2: And, and whose biography do they want it to be? Right. You know, there are really good reasons to have it be the architect's biography. You know, there's a building downtown that we look at from our office that's called New York by Gary. Huh. So their entire marketing campaign is about living in Gary's view of New York, you know, the Gary building. And without that, it might have been a fairly banal, uninteresting or, – or some other architects. It might have been sort of an uninteresting and unmarketable – building. And so they had a pretty good reason for doing that. And, and uh,
1: Well, it's a brand and it adds value. It's a brand. Value.
2: It's a brand, exactly. What would but it be coor-
1: without the Gary part?
2: But it's a borrowed brand. And I think it's kind of an interesting idea that how easily we now borrow brands from architects rather than insist that an architect look for our brand. So, you know, when um, the first Guggenheim was designed, it was a kind of iconoclastic uh, building Built by a guy who once referred to New York as, you know, a race for rent, and he referred to his building as, um, by comparison, would make the Met up the street look like a Protestant barn. I don't even know what a Protestant barn is, but you know, <laughs> I see Hester Prynne living in it right. somehow. But clearly, his building was so anti-city and so antithetical. And it was so perfectly him that a, that a museum that was about non-representational art and was a kind of upstart museum, it was an absolutely perfect thing to do. And you could say that even more so about the Whitney because the Whitney, of course, was, um, was a museum built by rejection. I mean, you know, Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney offered her modern collection to the Met. They refused. She formed the Whitney. She built the Whitney. And ironically now, of course, the Met is now going to occupy the Whitney with its own modern collection. So, you know, I guess she – either she won or she lost I can't tell. I you
1: know it's, it's it would be hard to to say one way or the other there. I think they both won. But you worked when you first started working, you were working at Paul Siegel Associates and you were working on restaurants that have really come to help define the restaurant scene in New York, one of which was created by a celebrity chef. It wasn't quite the celebrity chef at the time, Bobby Flay right. that he is now. Right. If you were to work on a restaurant for Bobby Flay now, would it change your approach given how much of a brand he's become?
2: You'd have to respond to his fame. I mean, it would be impossible not to. But in a funny way, I mean, when I met Bobby Flay, he was a chef at Miracle Grill. And I ate his food and I thought it was fantastic. And I met him and... You know, the restaurant was all about his exuberance and his colors and his take on food. And at the time, I mean, it seems kind of tame now, but at the time, that was a pretty wildly colored... Oh, no, I colored... remember first going there. Yeah, I mean, was it, it was...
1: 25, 30 years ago? Oh,
2: well, I hope not, but, you know... It's, it was... <laughs> 1991. 20... It was actually okay. the day that the first uh, Iraq war started. It was literally opened that day, January 17th, 1991. I can... You know, and... Nicely uh, done. Well... Well, I guess who could it's a important forget? day, yeah. And it was really all about Bobby's food. Because we didn't know Bobby as as well as we know now, but I knew he was a real New Yorker. He has a real um, kind of New York attitude, very smart, very savvy, um, kind of an uptown guy. And so the restaurant really was about him. He's changed. I mean, I think he's way better known. He's learned all sorts of things and, and gained a lot of fame. And so the restaurant would have to be different ultimately, but it would still be about him.
1: So you're working now in restaurants, you do private residences. Mm -hmm. You also have done quite a few museums. And I want to talk to you about some of the museums. First, we have to talk about the Harley-Davidson Museum, certainly one of your best-known commissions. And and working on the Harley-Davidson Museum, you said that museums are our most communicative form of architecture, begging to teach, delight, inform, or just mesmerize. And I'm wondering how that Point of view was built into the Harley Davidson Museum.
2: You know, museums, museums don't need to exist, right? Museums they don't. You have to have a society needs, you know, farms, and a society needs all, you know, all sorts of things. But,
1: but don't you think a society needs a museum?
2: Oh, I, I just mean in the purely okay. functional sense. Okay. I, mean, you know, I mean, we
1: could have that philosophical discussion. I mean,
2: art, art needs to exist, and expression needs to exist, but they're not. Actually, you know, I'll rephrase it. You know museums need to exist, but play by a different set of rules than some of the more functionally determined things and what a museum can really do is it can explore a subject a building that can explore a subject that isn't just itself so a lot of buildings are forms into which we pour all sorts of different kinds of variable content, right so office buildings have to hold you know lawyers and architects and advertising agencies and all sorts of content, all sorts of people have to inhabit that. And so there's a kind of generic quality that these things need to have. And, you know, houses have to accommodate family after family after family of different generations and so on. And so, again, there's a kind of inherent flexibility and generic, you know, uh, flexibility that's built into them. But a museum is really there for a reason. And And a museum is really there to house content and to make sense of content. And so it can do it as part of the content. You know, you could say that the Guggenheim participates in the content that it displays, especially the last show, you know, All, for example. I mean, without the big atrium, All made no sense. You know, without a big spiral as a way to see it, it, it made no sense. And so here are buildings with, um, with content that's either assigned to the building or is a kind of place in which changing content takes place. And so they are kind of inherently didactic spaces. They really are places to learn. And I suppose you could say libraries are places to learn and you could say that – Synagogues may be places to learn, but but they're also
1: places to inspire. Sort of an exalted spirit of as, humanity. As are both. As are both yeah, the others. That's right? true. That's true.
2: And so, it's great to design something that has content, as opposed to something that's simply a container for 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 unknown content. And so, yeah, I think it's a fantastic opportunity. It's a real privilege to design content or design architecture for content.
1: Now, in terms of the Harley Davidson Museum, you not only had the museum board and executives and so forth that had to weigh in and buy into your ideas, but you also ultimately had to create an environment that would feel authentic to the Harley-Davidson writing community, I would imagine. Yes. How did you manage that dichotomy?
2: This was an unusual project in that it took way too long. Maybe that isn't an unusual project these days. It took eight years to finally build this museum, but it didn't take eight years to design it. It kept moving from space to space. and. In those eight years, I got to be a rider. You know, One of the things that I said when I originally pitched this project is that a rider should design this museum. You shouldn't have some sort of third party. And I said, and I'll be that rider. And so I got a chance to be the rider. So and, you had to learn how to – Well, I, I, I knew how to ride a motorcycle, but I never rode one with a, with a license. So I actually got – I learned to ride it legally and then started taking trips with them. So we, we rode from Harley-Davidson to the Sturgis. You know bike week rally, and I went to every big rally in the states. I rode every single model of motorcycle they made. in fact, I had a deal with them where every year they would loan me a motorcycle and I would borrow it for the riding season and then return it and every it was a different motorcycle every single year so i I got to learn the culture slowly and authentically, and I would not have designed the same museum after that five years of experience as I designed as I would have designed in the beginning. And so it was a kind of method architecture. you know I was kind of method acting by becoming a part of that, that culture and I'm glad it took so long. It doesn't always happen. I mean, it, was a, it was a happy accident. And so the writer is you know is very sensitive to inauthenticity. The writer is very sensitive to um, flash and to any kind of offending bit of, of glitz.
1: Do you think all riders or Harley-Davidson riders in particular?
2: All riders that ride as a kind of cult, you know, Ducati riders are the same. And you could kind of say the same thing is true of maybe of BMW riders in a, in a different kind of category. And there's an intimate relationship that a rider has with a machine. You know, you're, it's different than a car. You're on top of it. You can feel the vibration. It moves as you move. It's kind of balletic. You know, it's a very... Um, it's a bit like, well, you know, in the same way that a Segway kind of moves where you think a, a motorcycle sort of does the same thing, but requires a gigantic amount of concentration in order not to get killed. And the, the combination of those two things really bonds you to these machines, and so that relationship can become a kind of culture when enough people do it. And ironically, the culture of Harley Davidson is that everyone's an individual, and of course, the ironic part of that is that they all look the same. But you know, it's um. <laughs> So you know, it had to be true to the rider. It had to be true to the company. The company had never built a building for the public before, and it had to be a view of the future of Harley Davidson, not the past. And it, and it had to be true to a hundred years of history, design history as well as cultural history.
1: By all counts, it seems quite successful.
2: Riders seem to love it.
1: It's beautiful. It's a beautiful, Thank you. beautiful uh, museum. It's
2: it, it to me is a. It's an architectural success in my terms. It seems to be an architectural success in Harley's terms. The person who is now the director – there have been uh, four directors since I started the project. And the current director is, um, is Bill Davidson. And Bill Davidson is the great-grandson of the Davidson from Harley Davidson. And he's unbelievably passionate about it. And to me, that's, that's the only endorsement I need in a way. But then riders come, and every summer have a kind of mini rally every weekend. Every weekend, when people show up on bikes, it becomes a kind of uh, mini Sturgis.
1: How did your approach to designing a museum change when you worked on the Museum of Sex? <laughs> um, As Jim blushes in the the Museum Radio of Sex group. is a funny <laughs> the Museum of Sex is a
2: funny thing because it is it is absolutely. Um, It's an intellectual, deadpan approach to the least deadpan subject there is. (laughs) And so it was such a funny experience to have curators discussing all of the implements and all of the kind of vagaries of sex and kinkiness and this and that.
1: I read that you did an exhibit on dildos
2: we had a whole case of dildos actually and you know and I
1: think it's the first time we've ever used that word in in good, design matters good and, uh, there, may be, there may be
2: others that um, there were, there were we had a whole wall of condoms we had um,
1: What were the condoms on?
2: That's really interesting actually. You know, we had, we wanted to light them internally and put them on you know phallic shape acrylic rods or, or tubes. We're going to put them around light bulbs, actually, because there is a light bulb, you know, a phallic shaped light bulb. It's called a T-lamp. And um, Good to know. It's good to know, exactly. <laughs> it's good to know. <laughs> Happy to help. Um, but the problem is it would melt the condoms, and, and they're actually very sensitive to heat, and they couldn't last, and they have to be changed. So we actually had to figure out a cold light, a, a, um, a cool light, a kind of fiber optic way to light them, which we did. And so, there are real technical problems with the Museum of sex. I mean, there are technical things to to deal with, but we thought we des- we did a, a, an exhibit there that was about the design of sex and the sex of design and mm. it was so it was really about the design of all these of all sorts of apparatus you know sexual apparatus and you know handcuffs and clothing and dildos and you know, female urinals and all sorts of other devices and couches and I could go on. But we decided to design it as an absolutely serious white box design museum and and not inflect at all toward the toward the obvious in this case. And so everything was presented as an object in and of its own right and nothing was treated in a sexual way. So you had to see these things as objects of design, absent all the kind of emotional, the projections that we
1: put into these objects. Exactly, exactly. And were so clinical.
2: It was it was clinical, but you know it forces you to look at these artifacts, hopefully, in an entirely new way. In a, in a way, you you're completely unaccustomed to seeing them: lighted condoms, um, beautiful sort of vibrators standing in cases uh, next to sort of mink handcuffs and. You know these things are beautiful objects, and they're you know, as someone once said about design, it's all on purpose. everything is designed, every human artifact is designed, and we forget that sometimes and so seeing these things, seeing objects silhouetted and properly displayed as uh, as museum objects force you to to consider them that way,
1: you have to have an enormous reservoir of information to go from these types of projects to completely 180-degree different types of projects. So you have something like the Muzak Corporate Building, and then you have the Philip Johnson's Glass House in Connecticut that you also worked on. How do you create a single-mindedness to the result that is that has an integrity to the brand but is also something that you put yourself into? How do you – I mean is there, is there a way that you can remain apart from the actual design or are you embedded in the, all of the designs that you do and all of the buildings that you create?
2: It's a good question and it's, um, and it's different with different projects. In terms of learning about these things, my, it's my, actually my favorite part of, the, of being an architect is that I get to go to someone's, say, business – and learn about how Corian is manufactured by walking around a Corian factory and seeing every aspect of it. And what could be more fun? You sort of get to learn the business in a kind of flash course, you know, a kind of crash course. And you do the same thing when you when you look at a brand, you actually kind of, it's a, it's a kind of research. So one can do research in a very immersive way and learning to ride a motorcycle again and and spending years doing it is a kind of immersive way. Or When we were doing a museum for Elvis, it was – it's literally all I listened to in the car and drove Karen, my wife, absolutely crazy. And then we actually started a project for Jack Daniels and she said, look, you know, I know how it worked with Harley and I know how it worked with Elvis, but it can't be the same with this Jack Daniels project. (laughs) (laughs) And so there's the kind of immersion. You know, there's a kind of method architecture way of doing it. And in that case, you kind of become the brand. And hopefully you have just enough distance to become a good spokesman for the brand as opposed to a personal spokesman for the brand so that you you, you can – as an architect, you can kind of keep yourself out of it a bit. Other projects really are completely different. I mean, either there's no, um, strong brand hook or, or, or you don't have time or frankly you just can't think of an idea that's, uh, and then you sort of do shtick. You know, it's just exactly what the Marx Brothers did. You know, the Marx Brothers really made the same movie over and over and over again. They're all fantastic. And they just did shtick. Marlon Brando never made the same movie twice. And he was the kind of method guy who couldn't make the same movie twice. And both of those are great ways to make movies. And both of those are great ways to design, but come out with different results.
1: Do architects sign their work?
2: It's funny. There's a, um, a clause in our contract that sometimes gets deleted, but occasionally is left in that demands a cornerstone. Really? Yep. And, you know, it's a little bit like um, credits after a movie. It It demands size and placement and so on. And, you know, 10% of the time we get it.
1: I read that you're working on the biggest change to the Fashion Center since your design for the iconic Neil and Button kiosk. And I thought that that was really interesting. I was thinking about the idea of, you know, once you paint a painting, it's done. You know, somebody doesn't say – um Vincent would you would you mind moving yeah, exactly. the sun a little bit over right. the that buildings in a different way but now here you are working on something that you created how many years ago
2: 9793 So what is
1: it like to come back to this icon that you created in the middle of the city in New York City doing something to it that is redoing what you already did
2: Well, we're doing two things at the Fashion Center and one of them has actually nothing to do with the Needle and Button and one of them hopefully does. You know, the Needle and Button is a different story and it's a complicated place because it's half on city property, and half on private property and it has a very funny kind of, um, you know, backstory. And so that came almost as a kind of miracle. I mean, I I don't know how we got it done because it's such an odd, out-of-the-box, unfilable project, so to speak. But it gave a center to the fashion district, to the fashion center, what was called the garment district that they turned into the fashion center. But what's really interesting now is that it really almost isn't the fashion center anymore. There's so little manufacturing there. So many companies have moved elsewhere. The shows are now at Lincoln Center instead of um, Bryant Park. And so the change that we're looking at now has to do with Broadway, what people call Broadway Boulevard. So Jeanette Sadekhan of the Department of Transportation has taken over some of the street for pedestrians. And put in bike lanes. And so we're looking at ways to make that work a little better, look a little bit more like the fashion center, and be more permanent than the the quick move that they made, which was to kind of paint the street a bit. So we're looking at that. And then hopefully we get to revisit the Needle and Button because they're actually thinking about redoing the inside.
1: Well, I can't wait to see what you do. Thank you so much for being on Design Matters, Jim. To learn more about Jim Bieber and about Bieber Architects, visit www.beeber.co
2: Right, not.com
1: not.com.co I'd like to thank you for listening and remember, we can talk about making a difference we can make a difference, or we can do both I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon
0: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica